Uh, we're going to dive right in because we got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, so I'm going to invite you please to grab your Bible, uh, grab the device you're using, whatever. If you're using something from home, uh, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to jump right in and say our creed. So hold them up all across the room and let's declare this as though we believe it from our hearts this morning. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we started working through the introduction text to really where we're actually headed next Sunday morning, Lord willing. Um, and never before have we ever said the phrase Lord willing and, and been so much like, <laughs> you know, for real. The, we've watched the creek rise a couple times, so Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Uh, next Sunday morning, uh, we'll finally get to kind of where we're headed, and this is just setting the stage. And last week, we set the stage for the stage so that we could finish setting the stage for next week. Last week we began the introduction. I guess that's an easier way to say that. Last week we began the introduction working through this text in Philippians chapter 3. What we're going to do, uh, for those who maybe didn't watch online or, or weren't here last week, we'll do a little bit of a review through this text. And then when we get to the part for this morning, we'll slow down and begin to work by that thought through thought. So starting back in first, uh, verse number 7 again, uh, Philippians 3, where we began last week. Whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Jesus is so good that even gains seem like losses compared to him. That he's the greater gain. The Apostle Paul said, listen, I've got a great resume religiously, but any gain that you think I've had in my life is like a loss compared to Christ. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as loss, the good and the bad, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's not that the other stuff in my life is bad. There's just something that surpasses it in worth. It's not that it's not worthy. There's just something else that's worthy in a greater way, in a surpassing way. It's the, the betterness of Jesus, that he's better than anything, that he's the, the greatest good, that, that even the losses compared to him are good. And he's saying, I count everything else as loss, even the most religious, the, the merit badges, the, the sword drill. We talked about that, that last week. The, the, even if I am that person who doesn't watch those movies, and even if when I'm walking in the middle of the night and I bend my toes sideways on the side of the dresser, I still don't say the dirty words. I'm, I'm that religious. Yeah, but I, I just want Jesus. <laughs> all of that means nothing compared to Jesus. And what we said last week is all the stuff that we tend to think is so important is really a loss if our focus, if our mission, if our goal isn't, I just want more of Jesus. Because gathering isn't the point, it's a tool. Christ is the treasure. And even spending time in God's Word, this is a crucial, necessary, important tool in the Christian life. But it's because we find Christ in these pages. He is the treasure. Prayer is a great thing. But it's a tool. Christ is the treasure. Worship is a wonderful thing, but Christ is the treasure. Holiness is a necessary part of the Christian life, but it is a tool to make sure there's not a barrier between us and the treasure. He is the surpassing worth. And last week we shared the quote from Matt Chandler, don't play with the tools instead of digging for treasure. Even the the best religious activity, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. 
for his sake, middle of verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I count them but dung. Right? Anybody? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost, man. It's all rubbish compared to Christ. Verse number 9, and be found in him. Well, let me let me stop here when we talk about gaining Christ. Last week I almost shared this and I didn't, and so I am this week as we're reviewing. Let me just share a, a thought with you, a, a phrase with you that has been transformative. As a, as a young teenage boy, my brother Mark gave me a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. If you've not read that book, I highly encourage you to read that book. We have them for sale in the cafe. We cannot uh, uh, guarantee that no one with COVID has coughed on it. So there's our disclaimer. Don't sue us. But they're for sale in the cafe. Get a book um, or download it digitally. And then you know but nobody breathed on it. Maybe that's a safer way. Um, in this book, though, there's a sentence as a teenage boy that I was like, i got to memorize this sentence. This makes so much sense to to me. This was a transformative thought for me about gaining Christ. Tozer wrote this. To have found God and to still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. A paradox, two things that seem like they can't go together, but they actually do. That we found God and pursue God. A.W. Tozer and I do not completely align theologically, even though he's much more brilliant than me. I would have not have said it that way. I would have said to have been found by God. And to still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. It just seems like it doesn't make sense. How can the one who found me be something that I pursue? In this pursuit, he said, this, this, this chasing after God, this pursuing God is scorned indeed by the two easily satisfied religionists. Those who are just satisfied with religion think it's ridiculous to pursue God. He said, but that pursuit is justified. It's proven to be worthy in the happy experience by the children of the burning heart. The people of God who pursue God, he calls them the children of the burning heart. And that pursuit of the God who has found us might be scorned by religion. And Paul says, listen, everything else, even the best things are rubbish. I just want to gain Christ. Not that I'm earning something or or getting some favor with God, that's verse 9, that I would be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Listen, I'm not trusting in my good, good works, I'm trusting in Christ. I'm trusting only in Christ, that that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what we are talking about. Oh, that I may know him. Like not just know enough of him to hopefully go to heaven one day. But to know him. And the power of his resurrection, I want to know. And that word know there is not like I can pass the test and have the mental answers. That word know there is an experiential knowing. It's a relational, growing kind of a knowing that I might know the authority of the death defeater, that I might know resurrection power flowing through this relationship. And because I can't know resurrection if I don't experience death and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that, that God is the greater good and that most of us would say, I've tasted more of God and I've grown more in God in the hard places 
than I have in the easy places. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. That's often when we hear the voice of God is when we hurt. C.S. Lewis said pain is, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we want to get out of suffering. Nobody enjoys suffering. We just believe if we can meet more of Jesus there, it's worth it. Last week I told you the quote from T.D. Jakes. He said, we keep begging God to get us out of things. He went to all kinds of trouble to get us in. (laughs) He's brought us to that point because he wants to reveal more of himself there, that we would share in his sufferings. And then we read verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the review from last week. This week we'll, God will uncover verses 12, 13, and 14. Verse 12 begins this way. Not (laughs) that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. What's interesting is we, uh, we believe the Apostle Paul was not married. And yet he still knew he wasn't perfect. Every married person in the room just got that joke. <laughs> you get married long enough, you realize, oh, wow, I'm not near as perfect as I thought I was. Because I believe marriage is God's perfect mirror to our flaws. We just see ourselves better. Beginning of marriage, we think we're seeing our spouse better. And then you realize, oh, no, I'm seeing more of me. <laughs> Ugh. The fact is, the Apostle Paul didn't need that mirror He spent enough time with the presence of God to know, I have not arrived. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. I have not arrived spiritually. That might not sound real deep, but it sure is real important. I'm not where God has his best for me yet. I have not arrived. And let me tell you, I thank God for what he's done in 75 years at this church. This church has not arrived. We're not done. There's still more to do. There's still ground to cover. God's not done. And and I fear that those who are going to come back to church after COVID, which might not be everybody, I'm afraid those who are going to come back to church after COVID are just going to be so happy to be back that they're going to be willing to just float. God forbid. There's too much to do. This world is too far from what Christ has purchased through his blood. We have not arrived. We have a long way to go. I have not arrived and this church has not arrived. And I love you enough to tell you this morning, you have not arrived either. If the Apostle Paul had not arrived, (laughs) y'all, we ain't arrived. We just ain't that big a deal. Like the dude who wrote most of the New Testament said, I'm not there yet. Well, then we ain't even started. (laughs) Right? Like this whole thing called the church spread around the known world because of one man's faithfulness to God. Holy Spirit used the Apostle Paul to do that. And he's like, I got a long way to go. Listen, we can't even handle a flu without losing our testimonies. (laughs) How's that for real talk? I've seen your social media. We can't even face an economic downturn without losing our mind, losing our faith, and losing our way. We haven't arrived. 
Do you know that research done back in month two of quarantine, they began to track churchgoers, the Barna Group did. And between week eight and week 12 of quarantine, one third of churchgoers stopped watching church online altogether. That's our tenacity, (laughs) y'all. That's our faithfulness. We couldn't last 12 weeks as a culture. 34% were like, yeah, this is too hard for me. We have not arrived. Amen. We've not arrived. So the Apostle Paul says, I haven't arrived, but here's what he says, but I press on, we're going to circle back to those two words, to make it my own, this gaining Christ, this knowing him in the power of his, of his resurrection. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Oh, that's so good. Okay, so for those of us with little ones or we once raised little ones and now they're taller than us, right? Our little ones, right? So I want you to imagine you're at the store. Your little one sees the cheap, plastic, rubbish toy that they must have. And you give in and say, yes, fine, this time you can have this. And as you're walking out the store, they they take the toy out of the bag and they are mesmerized by the cheap, plastic, useless thing that they're going to forget in a couple hours. But in the moment, they are so consumed with it that they would walk straight out into the intersection between the store and the car. And so as a parent, you're reaching down and you've got a hold of their arm as they are so focused on the toy. You with me? You with me? They don't even know you're holding on to them until a car goes flying by the intersection. Wrong. Or a big, loud truck. And it startles them and they realize, oh, I could have been in danger. And then the kid does something amazing. They reach up to the parent who was already holding on to them. Your heavenly father has been holding on to you. For some of you in this room for 30 years and for 40 years, he's been holding on to you. When the apostle Paul is saying, listen, in the moments where we know him, where we experience the power of his resurrection, it's when we turn and reach up and lay a hold of the one who's been holding on to us. We aren't the ones who initiate the hold. He's been holding on to us, right? We get that he's the heavenly father. It's just in those moments. And just like that child stepping out in that scary intersection, often we don't reach back until there's a wake-up call. Something goes flying by and we realize, wow, I'm not as invincible as I thought I was. And, and, a, and quarantine happens and economic downturn and racial tensions and political upheaval and political rubbish. And we're like... Where are you? And Heavenly Father's like, I've been holding on to you all along. <laughs> and, and what the challenge is, what, what's burning in my heart for you, is lay hold of the one who's holding on to you. Reach back. Press on to lay hold of the one who's holding on to you. And here's the thing about pressing on. That phrase is going to be used twice in our text this morning. Pressing on is sweat language. It's hard work. 
To press on to take hold of him who's holding on to you means I have to do the discipline of being less enamored with the plastic rubbish in front of me. That's work. Because our hearts are, are fragile and feeble and we get really attracted to rubbish. And the, the work of the Christian discipline is to press to break a sweat in effort to lay hold of the one who's been holding on to us. There is no work required of me to get to heaven. But there is work to put this flesh to death. To actually follow after Jesus does mean getting up and walking a different direction. And if we hope to experience what he's calling us to, it involves some pressing on. Now, don't hear me say, do good work for God, and he'll do good things for you. That's called karma. That's not a part of the Christian faith. It's taught in a lot of Christian churches today. But do good for God, and he'll do good for you is not how it works. Equally untrue is we also don't believe do good for God so that he won't do bad things to you. That's legalism. Karma is do good to get good. The way I was raised is do good because he's got that lightning bolt wired up, ready, like he's mid-pitch. He's just ready to like, right? You better do right, man. And we were so scared of that that we made up stuff that wasn't even in the Bible. And it was like preached about every Sunday. Don't you go to the movie house. <laughs> you won't make it to the car. He will strike you. And I mean, like, we made up stuff. We were so scared. That's legalism. But here's what the gospel teaches. Because God has done the work for you and is doing the work for you and will do the work until eternity ends and there is no such thing, then we, out of gratitude, respond by serving him. Matt Chandler said it this way, nobody accidentally becomes godly. (laughs) It's work. Wait, isn't that legalism? Not if you're digging for treasure. And if you're digging for treasure, it's not work. You're like, oh, I can't wait to see what's at the bottom of this thing. If we believe Christ is the treasure, then putting the flesh to death and, and turning our gaze from what's unimportant to what's infinitely important isn't about gaining something with Christ. It's about knowing him. I press. I press. Every time I think of that, phrase in the scriptures press i think of a weightlifter not me but an actual weightlifter how yeah, wasn't that funny watch on home at home next week no, I'm just kidding. think about this what if i saw somebody who worked out every day and i was jealous of what kind of shape they was in they were in wow i need to go back to school This is quarantine, y'all. Thank God Marisa was handling homeschooling. What if I saw somebody who's like all fit and in shape, and I'm like, man, I'm so jealous. So during quarantine, my sons no longer had P.E. 
And so I told him, I'm going to work out with y'all every day. And I was working out every day, eating clean. And then my dad got sick. And I went from working out to pigging out that quick. I'm a stress eater. That's what I do. Listen, (laughs) I'm just telling y'all, I ate. That quarantine 15 thing didn't start till midway through. I made up for short time. Like, it took y'all months to gain 15 pounds. I did it in four weeks. I'm making that up. And so imagine that I'm like, man, I'm so jealous of that person who's in shape. No, they're just working at it. Right? And I really think in the church sometimes we meet somebody and we're jealous of the fact that they know the word better than us. It's here. It's available. Like what? They're just working at it. They just seem to have more peace than me. I, I've had people that I'm like, they must have just had it easier than me. And then I found out their story is twice as hard as mine. <laughs> they're just pressing into Christ. I'm watching TV. They're on their knees. <laughs> Maybe it's not about the fact that he's like playing hard to get. Maybe we're just distracted by the plastic toy. Maybe we're confused about what's a real treasure and what's the greatest treasure. Those of you who read the devotional that I, I recommend the most, Paul David Tripp's New Morning Mercies, this past week you read this thought, the work we do is never to be done in order to earn something with God. The work we're called to do is in celebration of something. We don't work to earn God's favor. Our work is a hymn of thanks for the favor Christ has achieved on our behalf. We don't have to wonder if we've worked enough. The bridge of impossibility has been walked by Christ. The job is done. Our relationship with God is eternally secure. Now, in thankfulness, we go out and do his work. And I think we've become so enamored with we don't want to be legalistic. And so we just want to make much of the gospel. And we've got a bunch of really passive Christians who aren't participating in the work of God in their life. We fill our minds with the rubbish of this world. Let our hearts chase after the same thing that unbelievers chase after. And we just wonder, where's the passion? It's found in pressing on. To lay hold of the one who's holding on to us. He's already made us his own. For many of us, the hardest work we have to do is do the work of believing that we are who he says we are. His. We got to preach to ourselves that we belong to him. Verse 13, he repeats this idea again. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. I'm not there yet. And here we go. But one thing I do. I love the intentionality of that language. I love the, the mission of that language. I love the purpose of that language. This is verse 13 and 14. I told you last week were my life verses when I was a teenager. Whatever a life verse means, that's what it was. One thing I do. I got blinders on. Everything else pales in comparison. There's, there's mission there. There's, there's vision there. It's interesting. One of the things we've seen during the pandemic is there's some research that young adults are saying they're having a crisis of finding meaning in their lives. Specifically among 18 to 24 year olds. Looking for meaning in it all. January 1st of 2020. Can we just talk about January 1st of 2020? Did we have any idea what was coming? 
On January 1st of 2020, Pastor Darren Patrick said, Living without purpose is the most miserable thing in the world. Five months later, he took his life. Living without purpose is the most miserable thing in the world. And the problem is we live in a world full of competing lesser purposes that want so badly to steal our hearts. The Apostle Paul says, no, 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 there's one thing. There's one thing. This is the mission. This is the passion. And then typical Apostle Paul, his one thing is two things. (laughs) I love it. This one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, and this sounds like that press on language, straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind me. And that, that's, a, that's a little bit of a confusing phrase because again and again and again in the scriptures we're called to remember. Remember what God has accomplished on our behalf. Not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, not because we worked for it. Look at what God's done again and again. Jesus himself institute the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. We're remembering. We're, we're looking backwards again and again in the Old Testament. They're building altars and they're building monuments and they're building little stones of remembrance so that we can look back and not forget. Hebrews chapter 11, really most of the book of Hebrews is, hey, look back and see what God has done. The reason that we have faith in God in the future is because he's been faithful in the past. God constantly commands us to remember. So what does he mean when he says forget what's behind And here's the phrase I love. Another another preacher said this. He said, you can look back. Just stop staring. (laughs) You can look back, see what God's done. Even see the hard things. See the lessons you've learned through failure. Okay. You can look back for a minute. Just don't stare. (laughs) Don't get mesmerized by the past. And good grief. The Apostle Paul had a reason to not want to stare backwards, right? Murdered. The first followers of Jesus, as as this thing called the church was just launching, he's leading the way to stomp it out. Truly an opponent of Christ. He didn't want to look back. But I don't think that's all he meant. In this context, he's talking about how good his resume looked. I think he's saying, I don't want to remember the past successes either. I don't want to live with, with yesterday's win. God wants to do a new thing. God's at work now. Resurrection's still true. He's still alive. So I'm not living in past failure and I'm not living in past successes because I'm pressing forward to what God has next. We can sit here and talk about where we are as a country and where we are as an economy and where we are as a nation and where we are politically. And I just got to tell you, I'm infinitely more concerned with where we're going Because God's still at work. He's not limited by our tiny little population of the planet. My God's a lot bigger than that. What's he going to do? What's he at work? Because until he comes again, he's not done. (laughs) I don't want to stare backwards. I want to see what's God continuing to do. We look forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14. We're finally getting to where we were heading. Here's that language again. I press on. I break a sweat toward the goal 
for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As a teenage boy, verse 13 made a lot of sense to me. In the beginning of verse 14 made sense to me. The idea of pressing after the prize. I believe the prize is Jesus. But in 43 years, I never thought much about the idea of the upward call. Here's what I believe with all of my heart. If you're still alive, God's still calling you upward. I believe there is a, an eternal, unstoppable, divine, holy call upward on every follower of Jesus. I don't think hell itself can stop that call. The Apostle Paul says, listen, don't look back and don't even look forward. Let's look up. <laughs> Let's look up. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a whole lot of down lately. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of down. The economy is down. Everybody's feeling kind of down. Everybody's definitely tearing each other down. Politically, the outlook is pretty down. Because there's a very real enemy who wants to pull our eyes away from the prize. He wants to steal and kill and destroy. And we serve a God who's calling us up. Like not just we're going to survive this and get to the other side. It is about moving forward, but it's moving forward at an incline. (laughs) It's calling us up. And, And when we look at our Christian life, we're supposed to be a step up. From where we were in the last chapter, he's calling us forward. It's not a season of, I, I know enough, I've arrived, I've, I've figured out enough, I've learned enough. If all of the language of our relationship with God is past tense, I don't think that's the upward call. He's calling us up. And he's not just calling us up, he's calling us to live in an upward way, which is what, Lord willing, we'll finally get to talk about next week. The whole point of this has been to paint a picture of, I believe God's called us to be discontent, to press on, to hear the upward call. Last week we'll talk about more about what that looks like. Next week will be far more topical than just walking through a text. He's calling us to move forward. You know, the earliest followers of Jesus were not actually called followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 24, our spiritual mothers and fathers were called followers of the way. Some historians think that that's actually how Jesus was referred to by the first century church. They think they didn't call him Jesus of Nazareth. They called him the way. Jesus called himself that. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Apparently, way stuck. (laughs) Followers of the way. Before church was called church, it was called the way. Mark Buchanan, I read this week, he said, it was not called the idea. Or even the ideal Not the doctrine, 
not the philosophy, not the moral institution, not the teaching, the way. He then admitted, he said, I realized in my Christian life, it was as if I had been so busy studying the maps that I wasn't walking the land that the maps had charted for me. He said, I got really smart about my faith and I wasn't walking with Jesus. I read a great story about a guy named Peter Senge. I don't know if you ever heard of Peter Senge. He's a author and a business guru, a lecturer at MIT. I don't know if you know this, but you have to be pretty smart to be a lecturer at MIT. Smart guy. He's not a follower of Jesus. He is a professing Zen Buddhist. But because of his teachings, a friend of his that was a Christian asked him to come speak to a group of pastors, Christian pastors. He thought, I've never spoken to pastors before. I don't know what I'm going to say. And he was struggling to figure out what he could say that would be meaningful. And so he went to the local bookstore and went to the Christian book section. Just started flipping through stuff. And he realized in that bookstore that there were five times more books on Buddhism than the Christian faith. That evening he appeared before those group of pastors and he told them that math. One in five religious books in that bookstore was Christian versus Buddhist. He said, and I I was asking myself why. And this is what he said. He said, I think it's because Buddhism presents itself as a way of life, a journey. He said, and I feel like modern Christianity has become to you just a philosophy. Just an idea. Here's the thing. It's hard to sell out for an idea. It's hard to to buy in to an idea. We can argue with an idea. We can try to defend an idea. We can slice it up and analyze an idea, but we can't walk in it. But what Christ has invited us into is the way. It's a journey. It's a call upward into his life. Into his rest. Into the pursuit of the one who's holding on to us. This morning the challenge is, are we mesmerized with the plastic toy? Do we need the discipline of laying down the lesser things so that we can take hold of the one who's been doing all the work to take hold of us? I believe God's inviting us into a season as a church and as a people of holy discontentment with the status quo. I'm overcome with spiritual discontentment. My greatest discontentment today is not the fact that I can't hug people or that we have to put on masks to walk in the store. Or that politically we're the most divided I've ever seen in my life. Or that racial tensions are as high as I've ever seen before in my lifetime. That church attendance is plummeting all over our country. 
my greatest heartburn isn't national today. It's local. I'm desperate to see a move of God among his people here. That he would make us desperately hungry for more of him. And I just wonder who would pray that prayer with me today. If you don't know for sure that you have a relationship with God, I believe that's where it begins. He's done all the work to make a way for us. If you feel in you a a lack of confidence, you don't know for sure where you are in your relationship with Him, we would love to have a conversation with you today. If you're here in this room in just a moment as we sing a song that straight out of Scripture, blessing the God who is above all gods. As we sing that song, there's going to be some men and women in the prayer room in the back. If you're worshiping online today, there's a link right near this video that says, Can We Talk? You click that thing, there's a little form that you can fill out. You can decide how you want to engage with us. If you want us to text or call or set up a video conference, however we can meet with you, we want to have that conversation. To anybody in the room today, we would say the same thing. You can click on that link as well if you're not ready to talk to a person here today. We can talk tomorrow. We, we want to meet you where you are. Wherever you are in your journey with God, though, the, the prayer today that we're encouraging you towards is the same. God, make us hungry for more.